The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. Good morning, everybody. Uh, this is Steve Orlands. Well, first, I should thank, thank the Star Foundation, who provides the funding uh, for these conference calls. We are used to dealing with breaking news items for these conference calls, but probably this is the one with the shortest time frame we've ever had because the communique for the third plenum came out uh, less than five hours ago. So we're thrilled that we've got in Beijing this morning or tonight, very late tonight his time, uh, Barry Norton. I think everybody on the call knows Professor Norton because he's one of the world's top experts on the Chinese economy and it's somebody I've relied upon for an analysis of the Chinese economy for many, many, many years. He's also a participant in the National Committee's Track 2 Dialogue um, with the China Center for Economic Research, which we've now run for a number of years, and he's been a sterling participant. So he will talk for the next 15 minutes roughly about what we've learned in the last five hours, and then we'll open the floor to questions. But we are thrilled, Barry, that you're with us. We apologize for keeping you up what is now at midnight, your time, but are yeah, deeply, deeply grateful for your uh, your being with us. But in the discussion which Barry and I were having before the, the call started, um, you know, he, he had read through what I had read through the communique and was will express some of his concern with what the communique represents. Here we are. Ah, okay. I was about to I was about to give a summary of what you were going to say, but now you're here, so please. <laughs> Sorry, everybody, we had a little glitch there. Um, yeah, well, let me plunge right in there. The communique has just come out, and I think it's fair to say, as a summary, that people in Beijing are surprised and disappointed that the communique that we've just listened to really has not delivered on the very high expectations and the heightened expectations, really, that have been building here for the last couple of days. Now, let me say a couple of words about the what it is that we're looking at. This third plenum has been going on for, for three days. As you know, there's a news blackout. And then today, at on the 7 o'clock news, they release the report. Now, this is not the actual decision of the third plenum. That's going to be released in about five days, basically after they uh, spread it out through the hierarchy. The people in most, uh, the leaders of most work units are meeting on Thursday to, to talk about the big uh, resolution. But this is still something about the same size as the resolution. This is about five pages in Chinese. The resolution will be, you know, 12 or 14 pages in Chinese. So we've got the basic outline of what is, uh, is there in the, in the communique and then will be further elaborated in the decision. And here's the background. I mean, Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang have been talking about reform since day one, since they came to power. And they've been focused on the third plenum as an enormous opportunity to put forward their reform plan from the very beginning. In the last week, I would say, you've also seen the official media kind of tweaking the expectations. 
pushing up the sense that something fairly big will come out of this plenum. Here's a couple of things that they've said. They've said, we need a comprehensive overall reform for the second 30 years of reform. In other words, they've been likening this to the initial third plenum back in 1978, saying after 30 years of successful reform, now we need uh, uh, to, to launch all over again. So in other words, the fundamental objective of the leadership in this third plenum has been to restore, to forge credibility for the next generation of reform. Now, we always knew that what came out of this plenum would be something vague. You know, we know that the way the document is, is written is through a consensus process. The, the draft of the document was approved by the Politburo almost three, uh, three and a half weeks ago. Um, uh, people have been weighing in since. So we know that the document that's going to come out is going to be vague. It's going to please a lot, uh, try and please everybody. Uh, so, you know, it's never been something that we could look at this document and go, aha, this is now exactly what's going to happen. So the fact that the document that, that we have before us today is vague is not in and of itself a bad thing. What's disappointing is that the document doesn't have very much coherence, it's full of slogans, and it really doesn't break very much new ground. So we're really facing a situation here where the, the leaders in, in, at the third plenum have really failed to come through with their most important objective, which was to give the reform process new momentum, you know, to, to make it fresher, to make it seem like they were really rolling forward. And here, let me just start out by naming a couple of quick things that tell us what the limitations are. First, there isn't, as I said a second ago, there, there isn't any coherent structure to the document. It's all structured around the idea that there are five different areas of reform. So it's broad. And, and we have to say, in a way, that's good. It's very broad. But they've sacrificed coherence for breadth. The five areas are economics, politics, culture, society, and environment. And we knew those were going to be the five main areas because uh, Xi Jinping said this when he talked in Bali. And they are, but in each case that the five areas are raised, at the end of it we have a sixth area, which is party governance of the economy and society. So there's actually six areas with the party brought in uh, repeatedly. Now, why do I say that the, these, uh, the, the contribution is limited? First of all, let's take one indicator. One indicator is uh, the, how they talk about public ownership. Now, I've said all along, look, we shouldn't expect any big breakthroughs in the state enterprise sector. And that's certainly true. But actually, it's actually a little worse than that we see a number of formulations in the document that says that the state, the public sector, I should say, is the primary sector of the economy and that we should strengthen its ability to guide and shape the rest of the economy. So it's not just that we're not seeing any breakthroughs in 
the state sector, we're actually seeing a little bit of a retreat. Um, in terms of the slogans that it repeats, it very much reaffirms everything that was in the 18th Party document, all the slogans that have built up over the years. So it's kind of hard to read. I was talking with Steve earlier. It's full of jargon and slogans. Maybe that's to be ex except, expected, but uh, it's still important in terms of how we how we understand uh, what's in there because, after all, Xi Jinping was extremely uh, down-to-earth and non-jargony when he first took office at the 18th Party Congress. Now, there's one point in here that I think is quite distinctive, which is that they say they're going to set up a leadership small group to develop the comprehensive economic reform. So how do we understand that? I think that there's really only one way to, 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 to look at that, and that's to say this meeting was supposed to be the meeting that developed a blueprint for comprehensive economic reform. For whatever reason, and we don't know why, they weren't able to do that at this meeting. So rather than actually present a blueprint, they've had to say, well, we're creating a new committee. Now, this committee, it is a leadership small group, so we have to assume it's going to be an authoritative and powerful group. So it's not over. It's not over till it's over, and they have a lot of things they have to do. And so obviously they're going to keep pushing uh, to make this reform go forward. But those indicators are the kind of things that are making people in Beijing tonight feel that the meeting so far has been a disappointment. Now, that doesn't mean it's all bad. Quite the contrary. There are some good things in the report. Let me mention a couple. First of all, the discussion of the role of the market is, in fact, fairly well done. Uh, one little talking point that they gave out to reporters was to say, look, this, this document is a, a movement forward because it refers to the role of the market as decisive in, the, in resource allocation, its role in resource allocation, whereas before it was only basic. Well, okay, that's a, that's a slightly new formulation. It's a movement in the right direction. And if that were one of many such formulations in the document, then I think we'd have something uh, that we could uh, be excited about. But in fact, it's, it's relatively rare. However, the discussion of the role that the market should have in the economy is a pretty good discussion. For instance, they say an orderly, open, and competitive market is the foundation for the decisive role that the market should play in resource allocation. That's good. It's clear, unambiguous language. It makes it clear that the uh, uh, that they want to uh, increase the market role and roll back some of the excessive increase of government intervention that's taken place over the last several years. There's also a surprisingly large amount in the document about the role of government. So if we say, what does this document do well? What it does well is try and begin to articulate, because it's really no more than that, but begin to articulate a different definition of what government's role in the economy is. So it tries to articulate the idea that government should be more limited. It tries to articulate the idea that government intervention in the in uh, in the local economy should be restricted. Um, there's a surprisingly large amount in it about 
democratic procedures and democratic governance. Now, I'm sure those of you who, who follow Chinese literature know that you know, Chinese party documents use the term democratic. They don't mean what we mean by it. They typically mean some kind of participatory institutions uh, and, and consultation. Um, so, you know, we shouldn't go misinterpreting this as a, as a kind of political reform document. It's certainly not. But there's a lot of attention that's paid to um, restructuring local governments and, uh, and and making them more consistent with a, um, with a more participatory population and with a, uh, a more limited role. <clears throat> so that's that's some progress. We should also say that the the coverage of it, as I said before, it's quite broad. We've got economic, political, cultural, social, and environmental. And it's quite clear that they've decided that the document has to have broad appeal and that this very the, 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 the broad sweep of it is an effort to speak to some of the issues that they know the population cares the most about. And the things that consistently top the public opinion polls are income distribution, social security, corruption, medical care. And so the, the document makes an effort to, to touch all those bases. Um, it also uh, indicates that uh, uh, there will be continued local experiments. It gives indirect support to the Shanghai Free Trade Zone um, and, and things like that. But again, to come back to the idea that it, uh, it, it didn't really deliver on providing an outline or a blueprint for economic reform, one of the slogans in there is it says, we're going to combine top-level reform with crossing the river by groping for stepping stones. So in other words, we're going we're gonna to combine overall design with incremental, gradualist, experimental, local, bottom-up type reforms. Now, overall, that's probably a pretty good idea. But we've got to remember where this process started. It started even before Xi Jinping came to power with Xi Jinping calling for a top-level design of reform. So in some sense, what's happened here is in this document they said, well, we haven't been able to come up with a top-level design for reform, and so instead we'll push forward on many fronts, we'll combine experimentation with overall design, uh, and in that way we'll try to come up with a process through this new leadership small group that will lead to broader economic reform in the future. I think the context that we really have to look at this in is the context of credibility crisis. People, you know, the predominant view in Beijing has been they talk about reform, but we're just not sure if they can deliver because, after all, there are so many entrenched interest groups. There are so many obstacles. Uh, People are very aware that there is a credibility crisis. People are aware that the function of this meeting was to overcome that credibility crisis. If we say, did the leadership deliver in producing a document that gives them more credibility among the population as a, a political force that can push forward with economic reform, then I think we have to say, so far, the evidence is they haven't done that. So let me stop there and, and uh, throw things open for discussion. Fascinating review, Barry. I think that's very, very helpful. 
you know, when I read through it, I think I kind of, you know, you can, it, it's exactly that it, it, it kind of, it's got something in it for everyone. That I read through it and I kind of said, oh, wow, like they're talking about an independent judiciary. I didn't expect <laughs> That they would that they would address something like an independent judiciary that they they've um, you know they understand the relationship between economic growth and and judicial reform. I looked at you know you, you say they don't put a a time frame on this, but I looked at where they talk about having this done, having in place the institutional flame framework by 2020, and I said you know seven years for this that ain't bad, that ain't bad. So I I can it's funny you can. It's exactly what you say that it's there's too much in here in a lot of ways with then it lacks specifics. But in having too much in there, don't you think they've appealed to everyone? And that in fact they've created a document which almost everybody can sign on to? Uh, certainly, yeah. So I mean it is uh but the question is then is it too much of a lowest common denominator? Mm-hmm. Um, and again, you know, I, I, I would focus, maybe, maybe focus is too strong a word, but I suggest we, you know, we glance at that paragraph on the public economy. Because it's really saying, look, we're not budging on the public economy. The public economy is going to be the, the predominant part of our economy. Um, it will be fascinating. I mean, I think as you, as you point out, Steve, the, the part on the political system is in fact the, the freshest and the most interesting part of the whole document. It's very hard to say what it's going to mean, but um, but there's some surprises. To the extent that there are surprises in the document, they're mostly focused in the political part. And when they focus on the, the, this change, the, the Xinhua and the other Chinese news agencies have focused on this movement from market playing a fundamental to market playing a decisive role in the economy. What does that mean? What does that mean? To <laughs> and does that kind of give this new leading group um, the reign to kind of make major changes? I, you know, I, in and of itself, I don't think that's that's really enough to move the goalposts that much. I think it, it moves in the right direction, so it... it you know, gives them a little bit of space to say that this is market-oriented reform and we're strengthening the role of the market and we're restricting government a little bit. But it's just, you know, it's it's, it's pretty subtle, that's all. So you, you, I guess it's the, it's the expectations which are let down as opposed to this document, depending on how it's implemented, could be either... You know, a 1978 or a 1991 um, change. If it's kind of if things remain, if the status quo remains, then the document will have been meaningless. I mean, is that a fair conclusion? Absolutely. I mean, I'm certainly reacting to it in the context of my expectations, and you know, my expectations were moderately high. Uh, but I should also say it's not. It's not just me. I mean, everybody has sort of seen that over the last couple of weeks, the reform rhetoric has stepped up, and the and the uh, the media have very self consciously, you know, they must be aware of what they're doing. They've, they've sort of built up expectations for this meeting. So I've had a couple people say to me before the meeting, 
Well, yeah, they have to deliver something because they have purposely raised expectations for people. But they so, do I mean, in that sense, gonna, I, yeah. I don't get it because this document wasn't created night before last. It's been That's sitting true. around. It's been sitting around in this form from before the media started to hype that this was going to be a major reform. That's true. Document. So what happened? Well, now we just don't know, and now we'll have to see, you know, what plays out over the over the next uh, weeks, maybe months. I mean, notice that that in the sort of key areas, you know, we've got that there's sort of several areas that people have focused on as the most difficult problems to confront. And and again, notice in in the lead up to this, one of the things they've have said repeatedly is that we're going to address. Those most difficult, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna crunch at the hard nuts and really attack the problems that have been put off for a long time. And you know, of course, maybe they will. This, we don't know that they won't. But there's absolutely nothing in, in here to indicate that they're going to, or on which issues they're going to. I mean, for instance, land, local financing. The, they they do have some very they have a very nice sentence on ending the dual citizenship system that this is holds the society back but they don't really give any hints about how that's going to take place um, state-owned enterprises and the private sector again all they do is repeat the standard uh, slogans that have already been in place for several years about the state sector and the private sector it's so it's hard to know what you know you know in 78, how detailed was it? Not at all. So in one can make the analogy and say this is, this is not dissimilar from what went on when other periods of reform started. Yeah, I think in, in, in one sense that's completely right, but in another sense I, I disagree with you. It's completely right in the sense that we, we certainly expect a document like this to be to deal in generalities and to... Uh, you know, and to disappoint, the, you know, there were some people who read the, the DRC supposed 383 report and said, ah, this is a, a blueprint for what the, the third plenum is going to produce. That was never right, right. That was a very different kind of document designed to sort of provide ideas and suggestions and things like that. It was never going to be that. It was always going to be something vague in general. But I think the difference is, Within the generalities, you expect to see a couple of key ideas, a couple of key slogans, something fresh, that even though it's general, it really points the way. The third plenum back in 1978, although it was, you know, very much lacked specifics, but what it said is, we're going to shift the focus of all our work from political struggle to economic construction. That's vague, but it's also a big deal. But you could argue other, really, that China will deepen its economic reform to ensure the market will play a decisive role in allocating resources. That, I mean, it sounds to me, I'm, in the positive, now I'm trying to, to some degree, play the devil's advocate here, but to some degree, that's saying we're going to have factor price reform. We're going to actually implement, you know, a, a an economic structure where the market is going to determine the, determine the, the cost of all resources. You know, we do have this leadership small group set up to, to push forward 
uh, it's certainly not over. But if we're saying, did this, how far did this meeting advance the ball down the field? Mm-hmm. I think we'd have to say not very much. So it's disappointing. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean the game's over. But again, it's 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 not a home run here. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm mixing metaphors there. I realize I went from football to baseball. It will, um, yeah, we'll we'll need to see how it's implemented. Um, Absolutely. And a lot of these things have been said, you know, have been said before. Um, you know, but you have statements. Development in the non-public sector will be encouraged, which will in turn stimulate vitality and creativity in the whole economy. Yeah, but that's but that's not new. Yes, I think we really need that before, right? Yeah, I mean, I think we really need to, you know, when you look at a document like this, you really need to say, what are the new bits and pieces? And, of course, as as you mentioned right at the outset, even before we find out what the new pieces are, we're, we're quite surprised to see that there are so many old pieces that are included. So it, it continues this sort of incremental style that, that Hu Jintao developed of, of just, you know, touching base with everything that's been said before. So that means the new things, not only are there not very many new things, but they're, you know, they're adrift there in kind of a sea of old rhetoric. And so I think that also diminishes their impact. Let me, operator, let me open the, the, we've got a great group with us, so let me open the floor to questions. Our first question comes from Susan Witten. Um, Hi, Barry and Steve. Good morning. Um, so thank you very much, and, and good morning, or good night. <laughs> um, I, I noticed you referred to entrenched interests, um, and then when looking for specifics, you mentioned land and local finance and state-owned enterprises. Could you say a little bit about how these entrenched interests may have contributed to what you're reading as a disappointing outcome and what they have at stake and, and how much you think they may have uh, influenced this, this your reading? Well, of course, um, so that I have to, to speculate about that because I, I really have absolutely no inside information about, you know, what happened within this process. Maybe we'll get some uh, some leaks about that in, in future months. But, uh, but, you know, certainly at the beginning uh, we don't have it. But, you know, I think one of the most core issues that uh, has confronted the, the writers of this document is how do we resolve this interlinked problem where local governments control land and are dependent on land revenues to to fund both their ordinary activities and then sometimes corrupt activities. So there's this nexus that continually brings the local governments back into the economy as actors, as self-interested actors. And it's such a hard problem to solve because on the one hand, the local, you know, there are people in the local government who don't want you to solve it. On the other hand, local governments have an absolutely legitimate need for more revenues. If you take away their land revenues, you know, you have to adjust the fiscal system to give them better resources or take over responsibilities from the central government. And you have to decide whether you're really going to allow the hefty revenues from land development to really go to the farmers who've, you know, who are the ones who 
right now have to give up their land to the local government. So that's a really tough, technically tough problem that's also interwoven with all these powerful interest groups. What we don't see in this document so far, and it doesn't mean they're not working on it behind the behind the scenes, is any hint of how that's going to be resolved, how that's going to be resolved. Um, because there are different, you know, there are different fiscal systems to resolve it. Um, there are different, you know, mechanisms in terms of how rapidly you move to land markets and how much the farmers get for their land. And, you know, we just don't see any signs that that's being resolved. So the immediate uh, hypothesis, that especially many people here uh, in China just automatically accept that the, it's the opposition of the local government as an interest group that doesn't want the problem to be solved that is what is keeping the, the very difficult problems from being resolved. Whether that's true or not, well, we don't know. But it's certainly the first hypothesis that people here think of. Barry, was corruption mentioned at all in this document? I, I, no, not really, and that's a, a surprise because there was there was a uh, a very broad hint that I think came from Wang Qishan himself that said there would be uh, an anti that there would be new anti-corruption measures that came out of this this plenum. But if so, they are certainly not highlighted in this document. I don't think the word corruption appears in here at all. I mean, you could argue that some of the government reform uh, provisions are sort of indirectly uh, targeted at corruption, but but they're not very not very upfront. Yeah, there certainly was prior to it the whole discussion of getting government out of the economy is a way to to reduce corruption. That you have fewer opportunities for rent seeking by by absolutely. I mean, and, and that certainly underlies the the discussion of the government role. There's no question about that. The um, this whole discussion, a lot of the U.S. media have focused on the State Security Committee that is called for now in this report. What? Right. I, did not, I did not really understand what that was about. Yes, I mean, that's quite a surprise. Um, it's in the section on social matters and social reforms. So, you know, boy, this is certainly an area where I'm no expert. But it would seem to be that they're saying that possibly as a replacement to the existing uh, politics and law commission. It doesn't say that, but but possibly. So it's not a national security council. Right. It's a really a domestic security commission. And it seems to be, if anything, more of a development of this trend that's been going on for about five years toward social management, you know, where the neighborhood committees, but also the police and local peace officers are, are being enjoined to take a, a more proactive problem-solving role, engage in more comprehensive social management. I'm guessing that it's related to that trend, but really that's something that, you know, as far as this document is concerned, is out of the blue. It was not mentioned in any of the basic lead-up to the plenum uh, reports that I read. So that's that's completely unexpected. Yeah, that was unexpected. And then, you know, this, as I think I made 
brief reference to earlier, that this, this sentence, let the authority of the Constitution and the law be safeguarded, deepen administrative law enforcement structure reform, guarantee that judicial power and prosecutorial power is exercised according to the law, comma, independently and fairly, perfect judicial guarantees systems for human rights. It, it was kind of just a, wow, I did, you know, it left me kind of feeling, wow, they're really touching on, on everything. Yeah, it is, it is a remarkably broad document, isn't it? You know, it, it's funny, coming to this, uh, first of all, as an economist, and since it is a third plenum, it's it's certainly expected to be an economic document. And I must say, in the lead-up, even though they talked about these five different areas, when they mentioned anything concrete within the five areas, they all related back to the economy. So in terms of my expectation, it was that, yeah, there'll be these broad areas, but those that's a way of developing the importance of economic reform. In fact, the document is, is substantially broader than that. I mean, I would not read the document as being predominantly economics at all. I should say, too, there's two paragraphs in here about military reforms. And, you know, I, I'm not at all qualified to, to comment on, on them, whether they're significant or serious or, or, or unprecedented. But, you know, just the fact that they're in there is uh, is surprising. They're not in any sense critical of the military. I mean, they emphasize the importance of the military and the importance of the military being able to fight and win a war. Um, but it also talks about the need to, uh, you know, to reform military procedures and, and become more efficient. So, you know, again, that's in there too. It's quite, it, it is quite striking how broad it is. So I think, you know, if, if you wanted, if you, if you wanted to take the most optimistic view, I think you would say, Here's a, uh, a document that starts to look at the economy, and then the more it looks at the economy, the more it realizes that the key problem is resolving the role of government, resolving the borders between government and the economy, and it starts to suggest ways that government should be restructured to, you know, to pull it back a little bit. If that's really what they mean, then that would then you know we'd look back on this and say wow that was a milestone that was something very very important and uh, might even turn out to be a turning point but I think to to believe that at this point you'd really have to have a pretty high degree of faith in uh, in the processes going on among these people's minds and the way I read this in terms of state-owned enterprises and they're saying public ownership remains the core and there's really and again, quick reading through, there's there's no discussion of moving what was in the the hands of the of SASEC, the Guozaway, into some other institution which would then sell it to meet pension and social security obligations. That seems to be missing from this. Absolutely. And that's funny as well in terms of how the discussion has evolved in the last couple of weeks. Because what's happened you know, I wrote a piece about a month ago saying, look, don't expect SOE reform to be a big part of this. And I was actually beginning to revise that view because in the last couple of weeks there have been a number of articles that say we think they'll break up some of the state-owned monopolies. Not that they'll privatize them, but that they'll right. uh, break them into more competing firms. The head of SASIC said, 
let's welcome private investors to take more of a stake in private business. Li Keqiang said, local governments should not start up any new state-owned firms. A couple of things like that, and also more generic statements about resuming the reform process in state-owned enterprises. So they were definitely starting to signal the idea that they were willing to take a more proactive role with state firms. So I think that's, again, it's, it's surprising. It makes you wonder, what is going on here? Now, the, you know, the one positive statement in terms of state ownership is, they say, actively develop mixed ownership systems and push forward and complete the system of modern enterprises, which means basically uh, corporatization. List, uh, making sure that state firms are, are shifted from being traditional state enterprises into modern corporations. And, and, you know, that's an area where policy has really stagnated the last, say, four or five years. So it's good to see them saying move ahead with that. But, again, it's, uh, it's a pretty restricted declaration. So. Our next question comes from David Buck. Thank you very much for this briefing. My question is about the phrase of ending dual citizenship, is that going to be enough to uh, bring about a, a, a significant change? I, you know, that's a, a good area where um, at least they're making a, a, a clear commitment to the direction. The precise sentence, forgive my, forgive my uh, rough translation here, is the dual citizenship the system is a great obstacle in the in the evolution of an integrated urban and rural society, and we must create a, a completely a healthy new system in order to allow rural people to integrate into the city. So, so you know, again, as a programmatic statement, that's that's a good statement of the way forward. And that's something where we're, we're pretty confident that Lee Keqiang in particular uh, has some commitment to, to moving in that direction. Is it enough? Boy, you know, this is an area where, again, the 18-party Congress said something similar. It wasn't as good. It wasn't as clear. So, so there is progress here. But the, the commitment to the direction has been made, but they haven't made much progress. And supposedly the reason they haven't made much progress is that the, the heads of the big cities have essentially said, look, if we're going to let farmers have access to our services, it's going to cost us a lot of money and you need to compensate us, you know, X amount of money. And that's stalled the process out. Presumably after this document has had a chance to settle in, they'll push harder on this and we'll see some, some, you know, some more effective action. But it doesn't give much of a hint exactly what the approach would be. So it's hard to answer. Thank you. Thank you. Our next question comes from Frank Kell. My question was uh, essentially the same with this little uh, twist on it. I, I thought it was indeed uh, as described, but what I'm curious about is the context around which the, the concept of dual citizenship and allowing, uh, and by the way, these are not farmers who are coming into the city. These are, these are rural migrant workers 
uh, who are uh, coming into the cities with and without families. And the issue always gets couched as uh, the kids can't get schooling. And I'm wondering what was the discussion around this before this uh, statement uh, finds itself in the in, in the document. The, um, the discussion, a lot of the discussion has been about um, the extent to which rural uh, in your, uh, migrants into the city can be encouraged to settle down, invest in housing or other things, and, you know, shift their identification and their behavior to becoming full-time permanent urban residents. That's what a lot of the discussion is about. The education is definitely a big part of it. So is Social Security and medical care. Right now, the, the migrant workers have to go back to the village to get medical care in many cases. And when they change jobs, they often lose any pension benefits they have accrued. Sometimes proper, you know, sometimes according to the law, sometimes they're just cheated out of it. So, you know, the system really, really penalizes them, really makes it hard for them to settle down and encourages them to maintain this sort of uh, fluid, dual place identity. Um, so that really that's what, you know, the discussion has revolved around making them more grounded economic producers and consumers who will therefore have higher incomes and higher expenditures in the city. Thank you. And, and what do you think of this endow peasants with more property rights? Do you think that's that's going to lead to the ability for the you know the rural dwellers to sell their land and move into the city, part of the urbanization plan? Well, it, it certainly should. We hope it will. But again, there's nothing in here that really you know gives you much confidence that they're moving ahead with it. And I'm not saying that means they're not going to move ahead with it. But just well, you know, there's not. The way I read that, you know, that full sentence, we must accelerate the construction of new types of agricultural management systems, comma, endow peasants with more property rights. That's not equivocal. Move, move forward equal exchange of urban and rural production factors and a balanced allocation of public resources and perfect urbanized healthy development systems. So the clearest yeah. part of that sentence is, is endow peasants with more property rights. So some change in land ownership in the rural areas is authorized under this document, no? Yes, but it was also authorized five years ago in the 2008 third plenum. So, I mean, there, you know, the question, everybody accepts the principle. So maybe that formulation is a little bit more clear. So there is something positive there. Uh, and this is certainly an area where, again, if we're talking expectation, hopes, hopes were fairly high. Probably what's happening here is we're just building a land registration system. And, you know, it's, it's, there is progress on this, but it's, uh, it's incomplete. And so probably we're going to see an interaction between the building of the grassroots institutions that are really necessary to have a healthy land market. And this kind of big, big picture push from the top to really make sure land rights go down to the farmers. So again, it's I'm not pessimistic, but the document 
doesn't move us forward as much as I would have hoped. And in the in the banking side, nothing much but a statement that they'll reform. You know, no, no, really very little on the specifics. Surprisingly little, right? Especially right. given here's an area where they're already doing stuff. They've got the people in place who, you know, know what they're doing and how to push for it. It would be relatively easy for them to make some fairly concrete commitments in the financial reform sector. Now, that might be something. That's the kind of thing where we might see a significant difference between this document and the full resolution when that comes out next week. But, um, again, it's surprising. Is it, is it possible the resolution will add meat to the bones? Yeah, that will be some level of specificity and real real change? Certainly the resolution will add some specificity. I mean, it's going to be about three or four times as long. It'll probably have about this structure. So, you know, there's just more place to put stuff. Uh, and I think we'll see more stuff there. And when should we expect that? Pretty soon. Some of the units that I know, the leaders are supposed to gather to discuss it on Thursday. And so it should be available to the public probably a couple days after that. So it wouldn't surprise me if we got it on the weekend or or Monday. Or they might even release it earlier if they feel uh, some urgency. Mm -hmm. if, if, well, of course, the Chinese media is portraying this. As, as a huge success, that reform is is coming. Um, but I wonder if if the if the consensus view is people are disappointed, if that may require that they act even faster. I mean, you know, I think the the key thing is that the the context is really of a certain amount of skepticism among the population to begin with. And then the party saying, all right, now we're going to have a third plenum, and this is really, really important. And so, you know, to me the key question is, was the party able to use this opportunity to advance the credibility of their claim to be launching a new reform program? And, and, and I think the answer to that question is fairly clear. No, it really didn't improve their credibility at all. You remember, they're talking about a Reform 2.0. This is not just continuing reform. It's relaunching it and making it into something much bigger. So by that standard, I think it's clear that they, they didn't do it. Now, does that where does that leave us? I don't think China really has an option to not carry out substantial reforms. There are too many pressing problems. So the next question is going to be, all right, they came to this milestone, they had an objective, they didn't make it. Now we go to the next stage. Now we've got a leadership small group. And what are they going to come up with? What's the next step? What are they going to do? Do you, do you think they, they believe they didn't make it? That's hard for me to know. Uh, but um, I'm talking to economists, basically, uh, and to certain, you know, and some ordinary people. <laughs> Uh, those two categories, right? And uh, the the response I'm getting is uh, sort of a big shrug of the shoulders. Well, what was all the hoopla about then? Mm -hmm. So you've given you've given me some hope in terms of this resolution um, that will come out the next week that 
if it's three times as long, this would serve as the outline, and underneath each of the points, they'll they'll have some level of specificity. Yeah, I I don't think it'll uh, it'll be quite that uh, satisfying. I mean, that would be great. Uh, but I don't think we'll see that. I think the, the tradition is that the resolutions are also vague. So the thing we have to monitor is, yeah, you know, what kind of activity uh, now gets gets started uh, in the wake of this? And and you know, I mean, the I, I think the other way to think about the credibility issue is, to a certain extent, this is a golden opportunity for the for the party to mobilize sentiment, so that. People at every level feel like, okay, the game has changed. Now it's really a, a reform era, and I have to accept certain things. And also, if I want to, you know, be on the same page as the leadership and get ahead, I have to do certain things. So, if you, you know, in that sense, very powerful signal. But if, I mean, I think there's certain that, like, I think you said implicitly supportive of the Shanghai Free Trade Zone. I would say it's not implicit, it's absolutely explicit. And if I'm an official in the free trade zone, you know, doing battle with a ministry that doesn't want me to undertake certain things which can't be done outside the free trade zone, I go to this and I read it back to them and I say, it says we must relax investment access, accelerate the construction of free trade zones. We must this is that that gives me the the Shanghai Free Trade Zone official the opportunity to do battle and say we you know this is this isn't this isn't optional that we have been told to do this and does, isn't that a positive? Yes, yeah, sure, that's that's a positive. Um, I would say the problem is if you're an official in say somewhere in Fujian and you say. Uh, we should have a free trade zone here too. Then there's not really nothing in the document that allows you to say yes. This is this is absolutely what should happen. There's some urgency to it. Um, you know the the, the the times really support this. Our next question comes from William J. Cunningham. Good morning. With regard to what you sort of describe as an overall disappointment. Is this because there was resistance, in your opinion, in certain sectors, and which were they? Or is it because of a just lack of imagination and, let's say, gumption uh, to press ahead at the present time? <laughs> Great question. Uh, very hard to answer, however. I, you know, certainly there's resistance, uh, certainly in the state sector. I mean, that's the issue that I follow most closely. And, you know, there's no question that they're getting significant pushback from people who run state-owned enterprises and people who value state-owned enterprises as, as tools to help implement things that local government officials like. Or, and not just local, sorry, national as well. So they're definitely pushback on the public ownership sector. There's definitely pushback from local governments on land, and on the fiscal system. So certainly part of this story is that as they go around floating ideas, they definitely get pushed back on certain things. I think a lack of gumption, as you put it very nicely, is, is part of it. I mean, there's a certain lack of vision in this 
it essentially says we'll push forward everywhere, but it doesn't say we have a certain vision here of what we want to create. And I, I think that's too bad. He's not Deng Xiaoping. He's not Deng Xiaoping. And, and you know, he's, he's, uh, he's got many strong points. You know, he's got this nice down-to-earth feel about him and uh, and he's got this anti-corruption campaign which is very popular I think people like it very much so uh, he's got those things that are very attractive to people he's also got this uh, very orthodox ideological side that makes the kind of people I talk to rather uncomfortable of course I'm talking to you know intellectuals and middle class people and, mm-hmm. and you know urban people who would like to be sophisticated and they're uncomfortable with that side of things what he really needed to put this together into a package that appealed to a broad range of people was this economic reform component as well and you know I mean of course Steve's making some great points it's all in process there are lots of small positive elements in here but here was an opportunity for him to to score big and and come across uh, as a more impressive leader, and I think uh, you know he didn't use that opportunity as effectively as he could have. Well, on the other side of disenchantment, uh, is there enough uh, sufficient, or might there be enough sufficient uh, uh, to uh, force a real effort uh, uh, to do something, um, perhaps in terms of the resolution that is going to be coming out, or implementation of it farther down the line? Yeah. Well, the resolution that's coming out is is set in stone. I mean, that's absolutely nothing can change in that between now and when it comes out. Uh, there, I, you know, I think there will certainly be some give and take uh, in terms of how reform policy is crafted over the next six months. It wouldn't surprise me uh, if there is a, a subtle sense of disappointment with this that might lead people to redouble efforts and there's a lot at stake here China cannot not push forward with reform and I think a lot of people see that so I think uh, you know I'm, I'm, I'm not a pessimist um, and, and I think there will be a, a process of interaction you know as people react to this document anybody who's worked on China's economy for as long as Barry has could not possibly be a pessimist <laughs> Yeah, every time I say something uh, pessimistic, I'm always end up being wrong. So <laughs> we have one more question from Daisy King. Thanks, Barry and uh, Stephen. Do um, as we as you might realize that in China, a lot of the uh, healthcare reform is part of the hot topics. Well, I just wonder that whether you have any um, observation from the third planet about um, how government is going to do with the uh, healthcare reform especially considering the previous GSK um, things happening in China with the feeling that Chinese government is attacking the, the multinational companies. Thank you. Right. Um, not really, there's not really anything in here that allows me to answer that. Um, certainly there's, uh, there's an awareness of, uh, of health care and Social Security in, in here. It pops up a couple of times, but it's, it's pretty vague. And there's not a whole lot about foreign companies in here either. 
although there is a commitment. There's, there is a, a short paragraph on, you know, recommitting to an open economy. So there's some good stuff, but not enough that allows me to really address that question. Uh, it is way past your bedtime. It is at it is now 1 a.m. your time. But Barry, thank you so much for enlightening us on this. It has been terrific. We are in your debt for staying up so late and sharing your insight with us. On the contrary, my pleasure. I really enjoyed talking with you and with everybody else in the National Committee call. Many thanks.